Greetings, I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Nam, Australia. Nam being the name for the traditional lands of the Kulin Nations for thousands of years, which we now know as Melbourne, and a place where First Nations sovereignty was never granted nor ceded. I'm joined for episode 43 of the Media, Force, Media Sport podcast series by a special guest who we had the pleasure of hosting at Monash University during his recent visit to Melbourne. Marcus Stulf is an Associate Professor in the Department of Media Studies at Amsterdam University in the Netherlands. His research on technical innovations in media sport combines theoretical sophistication, historical perspective, and a focus on the visual and temporality that makes for original and engaging arguments. Rejecting the fetishization of new technologies, his critical and historically grounded approach offers fresh perspectives on slow motion replays and video assistant referee technologies, sports highlights, data analytics and statistics, fan practices and sport photography, among other topics. You can find his articles in journals such as TMG Journal for Media History, Convergence, Communication and Sport, historical social research and body politics. He also sits on the editorial board of Crisis, that is Crisis with a K, the Journal of Contemporary Philosophy, and he notably favours open access research that avoids commercial distribution systems, and that's a topic we'll return to during our discussion. I had hoped to record this interview face-to-face during Marcus's time in Melbourne, but were unable to do so because of an illness I have since recovered from. So we're recording out of Zoom. Marcus, thank you for joining me. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for hosting me in Melbourne. I had a wonderful time there. Uh, thank you for this uh, very nice introduction. Well, I suppose, look, you know, for listeners who um, have perhaps seen parts of your work, or haven't come across your work, how did you come to, you, you work on a range of topics, but how did you come to research sport, media and technology in particular? Yeah, it, it, it has a very long history and a slow history for uh, as part of my research. It was actually when uh, finishing my PhD, which was about the introduction of digital television from a governmentality studies perspective. I started to introduce science and technology studies and actor network theory approaches uh, to this question of how digital television kind of in- introduced, implemented into society. And while I was watching sports, uh, I'm I'm not a huge sport fan, so don't watch every day. But when I was watching sport, I was constantly seeing these augmented visuals, these uh, different ways of commenting on images. And I just saw there an interesting connection between the stuff I was reading about science and technology, about actor network theory and sports. And I felt uh, this was so far under-discussed aspect of sports, the question of how sports appropriates uh, new media, how sports problematizes new media and and makes us also reflect about new media technology. So I I found it that sport might be a richer field than so far as it is used for, uh, to also tackle media theoretical questions. I was busy then, back then, within a completely different area with digital television. And it's interesting because you delivered a, a seminar paper during your time at Monash, and it was titled Problematizing Television, Sports Contribution to a Cross-Media Ecology. So what were you covering and arguing in this paper? The 
broader argument was that sports always provokes questions about media. And this is uh, why I like to talk about sports media, but sports with an apostrophe. Uh, so that I want to make the argument that our media are shaped by the way sport uses these media, but they are not only shaped economically, of course, uh, or with respect to scheduling, but actually the way we think about media is uh, shaped by sports. I think I can reference your work here that, for example, the idea of what public service is is very often discussed with respect to sports. And that is one of the very um, historically rich examples that throughout history, the sport was used to think through what it means to have public service television, what it means to reach the nation, what it means to have a national audience. And I extend these questions to more technical aspects, for example, to the question of what kind of images does television actually has to offer and what kind of realism, but also what types of objectivity the televisual image presents to us. And I think looking at sport can help us to get better insights into what we think about television's images, their epistemological qualities and how that changed historically. It's an interesting way of looking at it. it. Differs a lot from at least some of the television studies literature I've read because reading your work, it offers a way in my mind of thinking through cultural context, the way that sport in, in different settings and the cultures of sport actually impact television. If you think about, for example, the lack of a public tele, public service media culture in something like the U, the US versus perhaps you know large parts of Europe and Australia. So, how do you get at those distinctions historically? Because that that historicization is such an important part of a lot of what you do. Yeah, that that's a really good question, and I'm still struggling to to I think to to find a very uh, convincing and comprehensive answer to that. Because on the one hand, I really want to make the argument and want to insist on the fact that sports establishes more or less a global logic, a global, uh, maybe logic is too strong a word. Uh, and, and that's why I use the term problematization. So it doesn't offer one logic, but it offers ways for problematization. And that really emerged with sports in the 19th century, with how sports needs media to constitute itself as a global competition of performance. You can only do that by using tables, statistics, rankings, and so on. You can only use that by having newspapers who tell readers, oh, at a very different city than your own city, a game was played that impacts how the game at your city will contribute to the ranking in the table and so on. And in that sense, this is a logic uh, that that is established with sports in the 19th century. And this logic, like other people have done uh, a lot uh, more precise historical research on, on that, uh, contributed, for example, to the calendars of uh, first newspapers, then radio, uh, then television. I think Richard Haynes did wonderful work on how early BBC used sports, uh, not only to attract an audience, but also to define certain moments in the year. And this is a dynamic, I think, that is really 
global. And because of that, in my work, I don't do case studies that say, uh, look, this is what is happening in the Netherlands in this type of sport. But I'm always trying to compare different types of sport. So as different as football, cycling, tennis, and different countries, because I think this establishment of a serialized competition with special events, with annual returning events, that creates uh, an input for media all over the world that is very similar. But then what, what you say is, of course, very important that still this dynamic that comes from sport is differently articulated in different media systems. So in a commercial system like the US, it has a different impact, like in a public service system. But still, I see more similarity than differences in the way sport is not only depicted, but in the way sport shapes the temporality and the visuality of media all over the world. Okay, that, that helps me think a lot about your piece on datafication in sport, actually. Yeah, you, know, you talk about the entanglement over time, you know, over a long period of time, actually, of statistics, metrics, metricization, and of course, analytics. And this is something that's, of course, crosses borders because you can see it in so many different sports. So what were you getting at in that piece? Um, you know, there's obvious one was baseball. The other one was cricket. Sometimes people think about sport as reflecting, you know, wider data systems, but you were actually making a different case. So what was that? Uh, the case I wanted to make with that article and a few others is that I think sport uh, contributes not only to shaping media in the more narrow sense of the mass media. So there, I think everybody would agree more or less that yes, sports historically shaped what television is, how it schedules things. And it, it's, of course, uh, it, it's commercial side. But I think that sports allows us to see how media on very different layers, like the lines in sports, the tables, the rankings, which are already mentioned, but also data statistics and mass media together create sport, but also are all shaped through the way sports appropriates them and publicly displays them. And especially with respect to data and metrification, the simple argument, and I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of looking for, I'm, I'm happy to, to hear disagreement about that. I think that sports is the one cultural practice where big data metrification is most visible, is most used by fans who otherwise wouldn't deal and wouldn't try to understand what big data means, what the impact of big data is. Sport, because of its history of focusing on the authentic body, also, again, problematizes data. There is, I think, since sport started, actually, a debate if data kind of damage sports because you don't want to rationalize sports. You want to have raw emotions and you want to have physical performances. And that continues until today. So there is a very long continuity of how sports makes data visible. So I think the first really uh, data intense pages on newspapers in the 19th century, even before some economic pages or industry pages were really sport results of horse races and all that. You have pages full of data of results. 
So it, it, it made data very visible and uh, the, the torrent of data that emerged in the 19th century famously, but it also gives enough reasons to discuss what we want to do with that data and if it is a contribution or if it is a threat to the qualities of sports. And in that sense, I'm always interested in how sports creates a certain continuity because datafication is not something new uh, to sports, but also in how sports allows us to think through the latest innovations. So yes, if we now have heat maps in sports and all these kind of uh, fancy data visualizations, that really uh, confronts us with the questions of how do you read them? Can we measure performance by looking at a game? Or is it better to evaluate a performance by looking at the data? Uh, what is the difference between judging a player uh, by their physical appearance, their attitude, or by the data we have about them? And, and these debates, I think, are a very interesting example for how sports contributes to what in science and technology studies is called public engagement with technology. So this kind of that all technologies eventually get their shape by not just engineers who are developing them, but they get their impact on society by a public engagement with that technology. And I think sport is, again, I would say a little bit an, an underrated uh, 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 contribution to this public engagement with technology. Fascinating. I suppose thinking about the relationship between the assumed objectivity of statistics of data. How does that connect with, I know you've been doing some work around, you know, the connection between sports role and the promotion or relationship with meritocracy. So, you know, in, in thinking this through, sports role in producing ideologies of fairness, fair play, how that connects through into forms of political meritocracy. How are you thinking about that at the moment? Because it is, you are... Your arguments, at least on my reading, are quite contemporary, but you start with modern sport, which is really traveling back, you know, a couple of 150, 200 years sometimes, but usually 150 or less. But you're doing things over a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for asking that question, because that also allows me to maybe say something about how I approach the broader social and political relevance of sports. Because at, to a certain extent, I withdraw a little bit to that and, and say, oh, let, let's first look how media are shaped, what we can learn about what media are and how media more generally are shaped by cultural practices. One of them being sports and sports is a very important cultural practices that actually uh, defines what media are and how media mediate. But that is also my way of trying to get a better grip on sports, social and political relevance. So while and it, it's perfectly or very exciting research has shown how sports representations contribute to gender identities, to political uh, debates, I want to contribute to that, that sports also adds mediation procedures to our politics. Uh, and that this is important. And one of the most simple, but I think most important aspects of that is the way sports excludes and includes. And it does so through lines, through leagues, through hierarchies, through weight classes, 
through uh, a, a gender divided things. So, so sport offers a super rich field of mediations who participates to create a level playing field, who doesn't participate. And this is exactly where I come back to your question that one of my, my latest uh, parts of research focus on this question of meritocracy and how sport does not only display the ideology of meritocracy, but actually offers a society media and processes of mediation that promise to improve meritocracy, that promise to create an objective and fair democracy. And I think by looking at how sports mediates its meritocracy, we can learn a lot about meritocracy in general. We can learn about how meritocracy is never possible without exclusions because sport, which is constantly taken as the ideal field of meritocracy, the loving playing field, only achieves that by organizing very specific divisions, exclusions, and so on. And here, I think uh, that the topic of data comes back in, that the latest use of metrics and big data in sport, again, is another step in a very long history where sport promises that we don't look at any kind of social factors. We exclude all biases. On the field of sports, it's only your talent and your effort that count. And this is exactly what data highlight even more. So famously, also outside sport, big data promises to be, for example, colorblind. It, it shows just what is happening and shows patterns without knowing what uh, race, religion, age, gender, the performance results from. But as research has shown outside of sport, because of the input in all these big data databases, even if we don't see it, there is a lot of racialization going on in uh, the way data is used. And I think this is something that is very important to understand that sport can do both. It, it can offer the promise of an even fairer meritocracy by using data, but it can also help us to understand the limitations of that by critically looking at sports. Uh, and so this, I think, is the political ambivalence for me of sports, that sports is, I, I would really say, a terrible cultural practices that constantly legitimizes racialization, binary sexual identities, and, and more of, of these kind of things. But sport also allows us, if we pay careful attention, to see how that is done and where the frictions are and where the ambivalences are. It's a perspective that is, well, welcome on this podcast series, Marcus, just for the record. Taking a step back, there's also this question of media practice, what people do with media. And you've also written about something that you called, um, with your co-author, forensic fandom in relation to the, the Tour de France cycling race. So, you know, in thinking through, I suppose, how, you know, media gets taken up and used and applied, speaking back to the logics that have been pumped out through broadcast and through television, what does forensic fandom reveal? Forensic fandom, on one level, aims to reveal all the different aspects that go into a performance 
On the other hand, analyzing the practices of forensic fandom reveals how in our contemporary culture, media technologies change the ways in which we produce truth and come to agreement about facts. And again, I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a little bit repetitive here, but I would say since 150 years, sports introduces a quest for transparency and accountability. What I think next to kind of this organization of competitions in series and so on, what makes sports a very specific cultural practice and one that is so productive for media and media change is that it is a competition in front of a public and that is a partisan audience where immediate decisions need to be taken. This is a very, very specific form of organizing cultural practices and a very specific form of organizing competition. And one of the characteristic developments in sport that relate to that is that there is a constant multiplication of visuality. You already have that when a kind of spectator sport emerges, you have the players, how they experience it. You have different positions in the stadium from which observers uh, look at that. You have coaches outside of the line you have journalists who look at not only from a different kind of physical perspective, but also with a different epistemological approach. They have different knowledges about the rules. And that makes sports into a field where every detail that happens is already looked at from different perspective. And then with increasing media, photography, film, slow motion on television, and then social media, these layers of mediation pile up. And this makes it a field where more and more people then with social media can contribute to the analysis of media or the use of media to understand, to find details of the performance. And there are always, of course, because you have two sides and it is a competition and it is immediate judgment, you have always controversies. There, there is no sport without controversy. So there are good reasons to look closer and to think twice if maybe the referee misjudged a situation. And this, I think, incites and, and spawns really a very rich activity where there is a kind of vernacular forensics. So people use tools like graphical augmentation, super slow motion, comparison, looking up prior historical events in databases to compare uh, what happens now and the judgment of the referee now and the one in the past. So these are all actually forensic practices to convince an audience that with the traces we have from some action in media documents, we can make a case of what happened exactly. And, and this is something where the broader forensic term that, that some see in media uh, with a, a lot of, of platforms uh, catering to that is, I think, playing out in a very visible way in sports and, and thereby what and answering your question, it reveals in a way how different media are used to produce truth, but also how through a multiplication of media, we constantly create more ambivalences. So by adding more media to this quest for transparency, we 
seemingly create more transparency or there is actually more to see, but that necessarily creates more ambivalences. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It sort of also speaks to, yeah, a whole range of technologies. You know, this idea that if you apply an additional camera angle, if you apply an additional technology, we can get to the right decision. Whereas, of course... You know, the the logic of one is of interactivity and, and contending interpretations. And, and and you're also, like, I was interested in, you introduced the, the issue of photography there, additional perspectives, additional images. Like, you actually have a really interesting piece on the 1908 London Games and their marathon and a photograph, which, of course, at the time was, of course, quite a new technology. What And you refer to it, you, you sort of analyse it through the notion of collective memory. And I, I don't actually know a lot about the 1908 Games until I came across your paper. But what is it about that photograph and collective memory that you, you're trying to understand, that, that connection? What I try to understand here is how the, this merger between a specific media technology, photography, and the specific dynamics, logics of sports adds to dynamics like cultural memory. And maybe to give a little bit of context, it was a marathon where an Italian runner came in first, but since he stumbled before and was helped by officials of the game, he was uh, disqualified after crossing the line. And there is a photo of him crossing the line. And this is, on the one hand, a moment again where sport helps to problematize, but also to legitimize the media technology. So it was really used in a lot of media back then to uh, show this is a capability of photography. He here you see it. Look at that photograph. You see he was helped. He didn't cross the finish line alone. On the other hand, it was also a problematization because, yeah, we have a photograph of someone crossing the finish line first, but it that is not the truth because someone else won the race. So here we see about there is a frozen moment, which is so characteristic for photography, which proves something. But to prove that, you need to know the context. You need to know the rules, what it actually proves. It proves that he crossed the finish line first, but it doesn't prove that he won the race. And because of sports temporality, this moment of reflection on photography is repeated, to make it very simple, more or less every four years when there is an Olympic marathon and all the television stations, of course, historicize, they like kind of using some archival footage to introduce the frame new races. So it has become a moment of cultural memory, not simply because it seems to have been an exciting moment. The Queen was there and Arthur Cannon Doyle was there writing about it. So it, it, it was a really important moment. But it became a cultural memory because it was introduced into the circles of sports memory culture. That you have reasons every four years to go back to define the most memorable moments in sports history and because of that, it merges in a way product cultural memory and sports memory and thereby, and, and this would be, again, one of the arguments that I'm most interested in, it is not just a cultural memory of an event, but it is also a cultural memory of a certain type of media use. And, and this is, again, what I would say is so characteristic of sport that when we find these history reels of sports, it is often just as much about the old media technology 
as it is about the remarkable performance. And just shifting focus, I mean, it's been interesting doing research for to prepare for this interview. And a lot of your work's available open access. Like, you know, it's something that you've deliberately approached ethically. I'm, assu I'm assuming it, re it reflects a, an ethical approach to, you know, the dissemination of research and that you, you try and avoid where, you know, it's not always possible. We all understand this. We work in the university systems, but you try and avoid commercial platforms. Where does that approach come from and how has it evolved over time for you? I think it's a really interesting question for researchers that, you know, are listening. I think it really evolved slowly with uh, uh, through debates with colleagues and through broader debates about what academic work is about and what are the hidden hierarchies of academic work. So in Amsterdam, there was a huge first student, but then also staff protest about seven years ago. And I was involved in that it was more about the internal structures of the university, but that also created a lot of awareness for me and, and people who were in this political movement together about the questions how we want to do, how we want to enact academic work. And uh, I think open access has really two main motivations for me. The one is really if I have, in my case, even text paid work, I want it to be accessible to as many people as possible, even if I don't think that that my research kind of helps a lot of people uh, to improve their life. But there is a lot of research that might do that. And in that sense, we should really foster open access research. And the other is really a political argument that I think the way some people get rich based on the work of others, the problem we have with social media in, in a much larger scale is really also a problem in the way some publishers use unpaid work and then put publications behind paywalls. And now the, the latest development is that they slowly move to open access, but then they collect the data and make the data proprietary. So this, I think, is, is what motivates me to do that. I have to say, though, that also a bit a tricky issue because working in Amsterdam, in a way, it is too easy to do open access publishing. And you see that this creates its own hierarchies because the Netherlands came to an agreement with some of the commercial publishers that publications of their scholars, of Dutch scholars, in these uh, publications are open access by default. For example, my piece in Convergence wouldn't be an open access uh, piece. Convergence is not an open access journal. But because I'm a scholar from Amsterdam, Convergence is obliged to make it open access. And this is really weird because this gives me, again, an advantage over people from poorer countries who then don't have the chance to publish open access. And so my articles get maybe more read than other articles because my university can can pay for that. So it, it's a bit of a tricky thing. And in that sense, I, I really try to choose the places where I publish carefully. But as you say, it's always a compromise, co-publishing papers with other authors who have other needs and so on. So I'm, I'm really not dogmatic on that, but I think we should pay attention to it. Yeah, I, I commend you for dealing with the complexities and contradictions. 
of uh, how, how we go about this. Your, your approach has probably caused me to reflect a bit more on my own approach, to be honest. But yeah, I think it's this is this question, like removal of some hierarchies only reveals further hierarchies. I, I think it's well, welcome to capitalist modernity is my general sense. But No, exactly. We, we, we should work on it. We should maybe work harder on that. Also think really about different uh, publication strategies and it comes to that that i have a tenured position so i'm i'm not in i cannot be forced to publish at some place with respect to i need to embellish my cv that fortunately is not any longer the case for me which also makes it easier but yeah we, we need collectively to think about what alternative platform publication channels we value and how they are also counted in in these promotion schemes all right a, a question without notice International travel. Now, you've just come back from a trip to the Southern Hemisphere and sometimes, like anyone who has been fortunate enough to do major international travel knows you you learn new things, you see new things, but sometimes it also helps you see where you're from a little bit differently. What, what, how are you feeling about your trip, what you've learned, what you're thinking about? How is, has it been generative? Has it spurned new ideas or is it, it maybe reinforced some directions you're already taking? Um, that's a, a difficult question, and it is difficult for me to answer because I'm I'm afraid I don't have sufficient knowledge to talk about what I will talk about, and that is that what what I learned most, of course, is the Aboriginal history of Australia. So this is I think this is so much more impactful than what I learned in the conversations with fellow academics about my research topic. And, and this were exciting conversations, but it was not kind of that I now look differently at my topic of sports media. No, I, I got some nice contacts and nice reading recommendations and so on. But what really changed my perspective on politics, on questions of climate change and on the politics of climate change is the little stuff I had time to read up on the Aboriginal history of Australia and how Australia deals with the Aboriginal history at the moment, how it is present and how I relate to that. And then, for example, I, I think you started that podcast also with an acknowledgement to Aboriginal landowners. And I also wonder, yeah, my university got rich through colonization and the city I live in. And I really uh, wonder if I should not also make that more visible, if I should not, at the first place, get more knowledge about how it actually shaped the, the place from which I work. And so these were the things that were most impactful, I think. It's really interesting to hear that, actually, because the legacies of like speaking as a uh, as a white Australian and an uninvited migrant to these lands, it's you know the legacies of settler colonialism and institutionalised racism. Australia is at an interesting point, but it has, certainly has a very, very, very long way to go. So, but again, it's this question of recognition: what represents historical justice? And you know, we've got some fantastic scholars, First Nation scholars around the world. It is one of the, the developments in the university systems. You know, there are actually different epistemologies, different ontologies different ways of knowing different ways of speaking and it you know it has made universities better places to work while at the same time universities of course being um, in most um, so-called developed nations usually the beneficiary beneficiaries of the very thing that created the oppression in the first place so now it's interesting you're here to say that about uh, Amsterdam actually 
No, I, I just wanted to add one remark that uh, this kind of confrontation with Aboriginal history and the politics of it also, of course, questions a little bit, but I don't know where to go from uh, there, my very universal approach towards sports. I still think it is important to my research to make this argument that sports globally introduces pretty similar dynamics, problematizations of media, but still, as you just said, this kind of recognizing, acknowledging different types of ontologies and epistemologies. I need to think more about that. Um, look, Marcus, thank you for your time and your insights. It's been a genuine pleasure to speak with you again, and I genuinely hope we get to do it again soon. Thank you so much. That was really exciting for me too.